Chapter 17 of The Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Smiling Jade. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roche. Chapter 17 Remote from men, with God they passed their days, prayer all their business, all their pleasure praise. Parnell. The following evening they were engaged to spend at a farmer's. The invitation was given with such humility, yet pressed with such warmth, that they could not avoid accepting it, and accordingly, soon after dinner, walked to the house, which was about a mile from Castle Carberry. It was a low-thatched building. Every appendage to it bespoke neatness and comfort. It was situated in a beautiful meadow, enclosed from the road by a hawthorn hedge, and on the opposite side lay an extensive common, on which stood the stupendous and venerable ruins of an abbey, called St. Catherine's. They appeared a melancholy monument of the power of time over strength and grandeur, and while they attracted the observation of the curious, excited a sigh in the bosom of sensibility. The farmer's family consisted of three daughters and two sons, who were now dressed in their best array. They had assembled a number of their neighbors, among whom was a little fat priest called Father O'Gallaghan, considered the life of every party, and a blind piper. The room was small and crowded with furniture as well as company. It was only divided from the kitchen by a short passage and the steam of hot cakes and the smoke of a turf fire which issued hence soon rendered it distressingly warm. Amanda got as near the window as possible, but still could not procure sufficient air, and as everything for tea was not quite ready, asked one of Miss O'Flanagan's if she would accompany her to St. Catherine's. She answered in the affirmative. The priest, who had been smirking at her, ever since her entrance, now shook his fat sides and said he wished he could get her initiated there. For it would do my soul good, cried he, to confess such a pretty little creature as you are. Though faith, I believe I should find you like Paddy Madanoth, who used to come to confession every Easter, though the devil, a thing the poor man had to confess about at all, at all. So says I to him, Paddy, my jewel, says I, I believe I must make a saint of you and lay you on the altar. Oh, honey, father, cried he, not yet a while till I get a new suit of clothes on, which I shall by next Michaelmas. Amanda left them all laughing at the story, and her father engaged in conversation with some farmers, who were desiring his interests with Lord Cherbury for new leases on moderate terms. 
Amanda had about a quarter of a mile to walk across the common. The ground was marshy and uneven, and numerous stumps of trees denoted its having once been a noble forest, of which no memorial but these stumps, and a few tall trees immediately near the abbey remained, that stretched their venerable arms around it, as if to shade that ruined whose progress they had witnessed, and which Amanda found well worthy of inspection. She was equally astonished at its elegance and extent, with sacred awe traversing the spacious cloisters, the former walks of holy meditation. She pursued her way through winding passages where vestiges of cells were yet discernible over whose mouldering arches the grass waved in rank luxuriance, and the creeping ivy spread its gloomy foliage, and viewed with reverence the graves of those who had once inhabited them. They surrounded that of the founders, which was distinguished by a cross, and Miss O'Flanagan related the traditions that were current concerning him. He was a holy monk who had the care of a pious lady's conscience. She, on her deathbed, had a remarkable dream or vision in which she thought an angel appeared and charged her to bequeath her wealth to her confessor, who would, no doubt, make a much better use of it than those she designed it for. She obeyed the sacred injunction, and the good man immediately laid the foundation of this abbey, which he called after his benefactress, and to which he and the community he belonged to removed. The chapel was ruthless, but still retained many relics of superstitious piety, which had escaped in a tolerable degree both time and weather. Saints and martyrs were curiously cut over the places where the altars and citerns for holy water had once stood, to which Amanda passed through a long succession of elegant arches, among which were a number of tombstones with curious devices and unintelligible inscriptions. Half hid by grass and weeds on a flag, which she perceived must have been lately placed there, she saw some faded flowers strewn, and looking at her companion, saw a tear dropping from her on them. She gently asked the cause of it, and heard a favorite brother was interred there. The girl moved from the spot, but Amanda, detained by an irrepressible emotion, stayed a minute longer to contemplate the awful scene. All was silent, sad, and solitary. The grass-grown owls looked long untrodden by human foot. The green and mouldering walls appeared ready to crumble into atoms, and those wind which howled through their crevices sounded to the ear of fancy as sighs of sorrow for the desolation of the place. Full of moralizing melancholy, the young, the lovely Amanda, 
hung over the grave of her companion's youthful brother, and taking up the withered flower, wet with a tear of sisterly affection, dropped another on it and cried, Oh, how fit an emblem is this of life! How illustrative of these words! Man comes forth as a flower in the field and is soon cut down. Miss O'Flanagan now led her through some more windings, when, suddenly emerging from them, she found herself, to her great surprise, in a large garden, entirely encompassed by the ruins, and in the centre of it stood a long, low building, which her companion informed her was a convent, a folding door at the side opened into the chapel, which they entered, and found a nun praying. Amanda drew back, fearful of disturbing her, but Miss O'Flanagan accosted her without ceremony, and the nun returned the salutation with the most cordial good humor. She was fifty, as Amanda afterwards heard, for she never could, from her appearance, have conceived her to be so much. Her skin was fair, and perfectly free from wrinkle, the bloom and down upon her cheeks as bright and as soft as that upon a peach. Though her accent at once proclaimed her country, it was not unharmonious, and the cheerful obligingness of her manner implied compensated the want of elegance. She wore the religious habit of the house, which was a loose flannel dress, bound round her waist by a girdle, from which hung her beads and a cross. A veil of the same stuff descended to the ground, and a mob cap, and the forehead cloth quite concealed her hair. Miss O'Flanagan presented Amanda to her as a stranger, who wished to see everything curious in the chapel. Ah, my honey, cried she, I'm sorry she has come at a time when she will see us all in the dismals, for you know we are in mourning for our priors. The altar was hung in black. But, my dear, turning to Amanda, do you mean to come here next Sunday? For if you do, you will find us all bright again. Upon Amanda's answering in the negative, she continued, Faith as I'm sorry for that, for I have taken a great fancy to you, and when I like a person, I always wish them as great a chance of happiness as I have myself. Amanda, smiling, said, she believed none could desire a greater, and the nun obligingly proceeded to show her all the relics and finery of the chapel. Among the former was a head belonging to one of the eleven thousand virgin martyrs, and the latter a chest full of rich silks which pious ladies had given for the purpose of dressing the altar. Pulling a drawer from under it, she displayed a quantity of artificial flowers, which she said were made by the sisters and their scholars. Amanda wished to make a recompense for the trouble she had given, and finding they were to be sold, purchased a number, and having given some to Miss O'Flanagan, 
whom she observed viewing them with a wishful eye she left the rest with the nun promising to call for them the next day i do said she and you may be sure of a sincere welcome you will see a set of happy poor creatures and none happier than myself i entered the convent at ten i took the vows at fifteen and from that time to the present which is a long stretch i have passed a contented life thanks be to our blessed lady raising her sparkling eyes to heaven they ascended a few steps to the place where the community sat it was divided from the body of the chapel by a slight railing here stood the organ the nun sighed as she looked at it poor sister agatha cried she we shall never get such another organist she was always fit indeed for the heavenly choir oh my dear turning to amanda had you known her you would have loved her she was our late prioress and elected to that office at twenty-nine which is reckoned an early age for it on account of the cleverness it requires she had held it but two years when she died and we never were so comfortable as during her time she managed so well the morning in the chapel as i've already told you will be over for her next sunday but that which is in our hearts will not be so speedily removed miss o'flanagan now reminded amanda it was time to return to which with secret reluctance she consented the nun pressed her to stay to tea but on hearing of her engagement only reminded her of the promised visit in their walk back her companion informed amanda that the society consisted of twelve nuns their little fortunes though sunk in one common fund were insufficient to supply their necessities which compelled them to keep a day school in which the neighboring children were instructed in reading writing plain work embroidery and artificial flowers she also added that the nuns were allowed to go out but few availed themselves of that liberty and that except in fasting they were strangers to the austerities practiced in foreign convents for such a society amanda thought nothing could be better adapted than their present situation sheltered by the ruins like the living entombed among the dead their wishes like their views were bounded by the mouldering walls as no object appeared beyond them which could tempt their wandering from their usual limits the dreary common which met their view could not be more bleak and inhospitable than the world in general would have proved to these children of poverty and nature father o'gallagan met the ladies at the door and familiarly taking amanda's hand said why you have stayed long enough to be made a nun of here said he the cakes are buttered the tea made and we are all waiting for you ah you little rogue 
smirking in her face. By the head of St. Patrick, those twinklers of yours were not given for the good of your soul. Here you are, come to play pell-mail among the hearts of the honest Irish lads. Ah, the devil, a doubt, but you will have mischief enough to answer for by and by. And then I suppose you will be coming to me to confess and absolve you. But remember, my little honey, if you do, I must be paid beforehand. Amanda disengaged her hand and entered the parlor where the company, by the display of pocket handkerchiefs on their laps, seemed prepared to make a downright meal of the good things before them. The Miss O'Flanagans, from the tolls of the tea table, and last grew as red as the ribbon with which they were profusely ornamented, the table at length removed, the chairs arranged, the benches placed in the passage for the old folks, the signal for a dance was given by the pipers playing an Irish jig. The farmer's eldest son, habited in his sky-blue coat, his hair combed sleek on his forehead, and his complexion as bright as a full-blown poppy, advanced to our heroine, and begged with much modesty and many bows she would do him the favour to stand up with him. She hesitated a little when Father O'Gallaghan gave her a tap, or rather slap on the shoulder, made her start suddenly from her seat. He laughed heartily at this, declaring he liked to see a girl alive and merry. As he could not join in the dance, he consoled himself with being master of the ceremonies, and insisted on Amanda's dancing and leading off the priest in his boots. She felt little inclined to comply, but she was one of those who can sacrifice their own inclination to that of others. Being directed in the figure by the priest, she went down the dance, but the floor being an earthen one, by the time she had concluded it, she begged they would excuse her sitting the remainder of the evening, and she felt so extremely fatigued. She and Fitzalan would gladly have declined staying supper, but this they found impossible, without either greatly mortifying or absolutely offending their hospitable entertainers. The table was covered with a profusion of good country fare, and none seemed to enjoy it more truly than the priest. In the intervals of eating, he just flew about in every direction. The scope he gave to his vivacity accelerated the rest, so that, like Falstaff, he was not only witty himself, but a promoter of wit in others. Pray, father, said a young man to him, what do you give in return for all the good cheer you get? My blessing, to be sure, replied he, what better could I give? Eh, so you may think, but that is not the case with us all, I promise you. It is so pitheth. I must tell you a story about that same thing called a priest's blessing. 
A poor man went one day to a priest who had the name of being very rich and very charitable. But as all we hear is not gospel, so the poor man doubted a little the truth of the latter report and resolved on trying him. Father, says he, I have met with the great losses. My cabin was burned, my pigs stolen, and my cow fell into a ditch and broke her neck. So I am come to ask your reverence for the love of heaven to lend me a crown. A crown? repeated the angry and astonished priest. Oh, you rogue, where do you think I could get money to lend except like yourself? I had pilfered and stolen. Oh, that is neither here nor there, replied the man. You know I cleared the score of my conscience with you long ago. So tell me, father, if you will lend me half a crown. No, nor a shilling. Well, a farthing, then. Anything from such a good man as you. No, said the priest, not a mite. Mayn't I have your blessing? Then asked the man. Oh, that you shall, and welcome, replied he, smiling. Why, then, father, returned the other, I would refuse it if you forced it upon me. For, do you see, had it been worth one farthing, you would have refused it to me. You have put me in the mind of a very curious story, exclaimed another young man, as this one concluded his. A young knight went into a chapel in Spain one morning, where he observed a monk standing in the supplicating attitude with a box in his hand. He asked him what this was for, and learned to collect money for praying the souls of fifty Christians out of purgatory whom the Moors had murdered. The knight threw a piece of money into the box, and the monk, after repeating a short prayer, exclaimed, There is one soul redeemed. The knight threw in a second, and the priest, after the same ceremony, cried, There is another free. Thus they both went on, one giving and the other praying, till by the monk's account all the souls were free. Are you sure of this? inquired the knight. Aye, replied the priest. They are all assembled together at the gate of heaven, which St. Peter will gladly open for them, and they are now joyfully seated in paradise. From whence they cannot be removed, I suppose, said the knight. Removed? repeated the astonished priest. No, the world itself might be easier moved. Then, if you please, Holy Father, return me my ducats. They have accomplished the purpose of which they were given, and as I am only a poor cavalier, without a chance of being as happily situated, at least for some years, as the souls we have mutually contributed to release, I stand in great need of them. Fitzalan was surprised at the freedom with which they treated the priest, but he laughed as merrily as the rest at their stories, for he knew that, though they sometimes allowed themselves a little latitude, they neither wished nor attempted to shake off his power. 
Fitzalan and Manda withdrew as early as possible from the party, which, if it wanted every other charm, had that of novelty, at least to them. The next morning, Amanda repaired to the convent and inquired for Sister Mary, the good-natured nun she had seen the preceding evening. She immediately made her appearance and was delighted at seeing Amanda. She conducted her to the schoolroom, where the rest of the nuns and the pupils were assembled, and Amanda was delighted with the content and regularity which appeared in the society, as well as the obliging eagerness they showed to gratify her curiosity. They led her through the house, which contained a number of apartments, every nun having one to herself, furnished with a bed, chair, table, and crucifix, and then to the parlor where their new priors sat. She was a woman far advanced in life. Had a painter wanted to personify benevolence, he might have chosen her for a model. So soft, so benignant was her countenance. Sorrow, as well as time, had marked it deeply, but the mild expression of her eyes announced the most perfect resignation to that sorrow. She received Amanda with the truest politeness and the most friendly warmth, and Amanda felt impressed with real reverence for her, whilst she acknowledged in her mind that there could not be a happier situation for her than her present. She thought it a pity the world had been deprived of a woman who had had proved such an ornament to it. Sister Mary disappeared, but returned in a few minutes with cake and currant wine, which she forced Amanda to take. The good sister was enchanted with her young visitor, and having no idea of concealing her feelings, she openly expressed her admiration. Dear mother, said she, addressing the prioress. Is she not a lovely creature? What pretty eyes she has got, and what sweet little hands! Oh, if our blessed lady would but touch her heart and make her become one of us, I should be so happy. The prioress smiled. She was not so great an enthusiast as Sister Mary. It would be a pity, said she so sweet a flower should be hid amidst the ruins of St. Catherine's. Amanda made an addition to the flowers. She was thanked by the nuns and entreated to favor them often with a visit. Just as she reached Castle Carberry, she saw the Kilcoburn's carriage stop at it, from which Lady Greystock and the young ladies alighted. They both spoke at once, and so extremely fast that Amanda scarcely understood what they said. They declared a thousand impertinent visitors had preventing their coming to the preceding morning and looking at the things she had obligingly promised to show them. Amanda recollected no such promise, but would not contradict them, and permitted their taking what patterns they like. Lady Greystock smiled sarcastically at her young kinswomen and expressed a wish to see the castle. Amanda led her through it.
her ladyship was particularly pleased with the dressing-room. Here the young ladies, with rude and eager curiosity, examined everything. But her ladyship, who was full as curious as themselves, could not condemn freedoms she took herself. Observing a petticoat in a tambour frame, she admired the pattern, and hearing it was designed by Amanda, extolled her fine taste, and declared she should, of all things, like to have one worked in the same. This hint was too plain to pass unnoticed. Amanda wished to oblige, particularly any one advanced in life, and told her ladyship she would work one for her. Lady Greystock smiled most graciously at this, and pressing her hand, declared she was a charming girl. The Miss Kilcobans winked shyly, and taking her hand in turn, assured her they had conceived a most ardent friendship for her, and hoped she would often favour them with her company. Amanda answered those insincere professions with cool civility, and the visitors departed. End of chapter 17